You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 as we transition together to our time of worship in the Word, in the Word. And most of you have been here for a number of weeks uh, since we started this series, The Gospel on the Ground. But if you are new or maybe uh, haven't been in a while, this is a series that we're walking through the book of Ephesians together. And we're looking at what it means to live out the gospel of the first three chapters that we spent a number of weeks looking at together. Uh, to live those high and lofty biblical truths out in a, on a ground level, on a very practical kind of uh, living kind of a, a way, the gospel on the ground. And so we've been looking at, starting last week, we've been looking at the gospel and the Christian walk. What does it mean uh, to live this, this Christian walk together? How do we live as individuals? We looked at the church and how we relate to one another and, and what biblical community looks like. Um, But now, what does it look like to live out the Christian life as individual believers? And this is such an incredibly relevant passage in our day. uh, Both last week and this week and the next two that we'll look at together. Because we live in a church culture and we live in a post-Christian culture in which practical everyday living and obedience to Jesus has become divorced from the doctrines of the Christian faith. We think for some reason that we can believe the core doctrines of the Christian faith and yet turn aside from living in a life that is consistent with the Christian faith. And what Paul does with the church at Ephesus is he reminds them that the same gospel that saved you now determines how you live. And so I said two things to you last week, just by way of introduction and reminder this week. We live in a godless culture. If you you aim to live the Christian life today in our culture, it will be more difficult than it was 20 years ago. Because we live in a culture that is becoming more and more post-Christian or beyond the Christian worldview And a culture that is ultimately becoming more and more antagonistic toward Christianity. And not only that, but we live in a day of ungodly compromise. I said that to you last week as well. Where the church itself, so many, are turning away from the faith and turning away from living lives that honor Jesus. And so we aim as Christians to follow God's word and not be those kinds of people We have been saved out of this world, but we remain in the world in order to live a life that is salt and light, worthy of the gospel to which we've been called. And this is what Paul aims to teach the church at Ephesus how to do. 
And so that's what we're aiming at this morning. And if you found your place there in Ephesians 4, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll begin together this morning at verses 25 and and really read into what is a part of the same paragraph here into chapter 5. So, verse 25 with me. The Bible says, Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray now that you would come and be our teacher. Lord, your word says that it is not up to our flesh to understand the things of God. Many of the things that we read in this passage are not only beyond our understanding, but even beyond our ability to really keep. We find them difficult to love one another and to to not uh, sin even in our anger. God, there's some difficult things in this passage, and yet you are our teacher and you empower us to live them out as Christians. God, your presence is here in your Holy Spirit and we we want to be submitted to your word. So I pray that you would help us where we are weak. But beyond that, God, would you not just give us a moral pattern by which to live our lives, but God, would you show us fresh and new the love of God in Christ? I pray that if if there's someone here this morning that's never experienced your love, Lord, that the gospel would become good news to them and that they would trust you with their life, that they would that they would surrender to your lordship and receive your love that has been freely given. And I pray that as believers in this room, we would be reminded of how much you love us. God, that we we would be overwhelmed. How amazing it is that you would love us sinners and call us sons. Lord, be with us now as we study under the preaching of your word. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So let me just bring to your minds the same truth that we looked at last week, the main idea of all of these verses. And if you're tracking with us, it's really chapter 4, verse 17, all the way through chapter 5 and verse 21. It's really one section about how to live as the new man, the new self, and to put off the old self. And so I gave you this truth last week. The Gospel calls us to continually put off our former lives without Christ and put on our new lives in Christ. 
That is the call of Scripture. And we saw it together really there mainly in verse 22, setting the the theme for us. Chapter 4 and verse 22, when Paul says that we are to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. So he's describing the way you once were before Jesus as something that's in the past, former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So we're to put off that self. And we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self. A new self, by the way, that we didn't generate. A new self that God generated. The new man through the new birth that He generated in order, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And again, we've already seen this in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are not saved by our works, but certainly we have been born again by God unto good works that we might live in a way that is worthy of our calling. And so Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, verse 2, our passage this morning contains some specific instructions about how to put on the new self or how to live the new life. How do we put off the former and put on the new? Last week we saw a bunch of negative things. Don't live your life as the Gentiles live. Don't live your life as the, as the, the world lives. You live your life as those who've been taught in Christ. You live according to the truth of God's Word. All of the negative things we saw last week. But this week, Paul transitions and begins to make some contrast between a a negative past life and a positive future life. To to abandon the old thing and to live in the new way. And, And you see that play out as you look at the contrast between lying and honesty. And you look at all of these different contrasts in our passage This morning. Now, if you're reading through the passage and maybe studying this on your own, you might come across it and say, well, this looks like a long list of things that I should not do and things that I should do. But it's actually divided into three different sections if you read it carefully. And those sections are marked by a major word that we looked at together last week. So as you think about what it means to live the Christian life, There's a word that Scripture uses often to describe it. And it's the word walk. We looked at it last week. We began in verse, uh, verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1 when Paul said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And, And that word just keeps showing up again and again and again. But if you notice, each place it appears, it actually appears as a new description. And so it sets apart... Three different parts of this passage. What does he mean by walk? It's a a word that we get really from the Old Testament. A word that was used to describe Israel. Remember that Israel, as they were called out of Egypt, journeyed through the wilderness and and they journeyed through the promised land. They They were somewhat of a migrant people. And so they understood what it meant to walk. And much in the same way today, you and I are travelers and pilgrims in this world. This world is not our home. We're going to a place that God has prepared for us. And yet ultimately, ultimately, we must walk in a way in this life as we journey that is consistent with our faith. 
And so this idea of walk appears again and again in the Old Testament and the people of God are are warned in the Old Testament not to walk in the way the Gentiles or the, the other nations around them, not because of an ethnic kind of a description, but an ethical description. They're warned. Don't walk in the way that they walk. It's not of God. And so, for example, we didn't have time to look at these last week, but for example, Psalm 1 We know this one well. You should memorize this one. I think some of us might be memorizing Psalm 1. The Bible says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, or the Word of God. And on his law he meditates day and night. So the word walk, they understood But not just walking in the way that God calls them to walk ethically. There is an ethnic dimension to it. Micah 4 and verse 5. For all the peoples walk in the name of its God. But we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. There is a decisive difference between, or there should be, Between the way that a Christian walks and the way that the rest of the world walks. Paul is warning us here in Ephesians 4 that we should walk in a way that's worthy of the call. It's different. And so by putting on the putting off rather the old self and putting on the new self, it involves it involves guarding our walks carefully. And so. It's about walking in the passage. And therefore, you should see three different places this word is used in the next few verses. I want to just name them for you, and you might circle them in your Bible. The first of which we want to focus on this morning. Chapter 5 and verse 2, we are to walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 2, we're to walk in love. So that's a description of the heart, how we are to love Next week, we're going to look at chapter 5 and verse 8, when he says, walk in light, to walk in the light. And so this is a moral dimension or conduct, the way that we live, the choices that we make. And then notice chapter 5 and verse 15, that we're to walk in wisdom. So he's describing the mind, our thinking patterns, and the way that we take that thought and make application to our lives. And so that is incredibly helpful to the way that we understand this passage. If, if we're not careful, we'll come to this passage as a checklist and we'll make sure we're doing everything in it. And we'll be tempted to limit ourselves only to the things that we see here. In other words, we'll be tempted to limit ourselves to the letter of the law and miss the principle. The principle that it is the total self that he is after. Our walk with Christ describes everything about us. Our heart, our conduct, our mind. What you love, what you do, what you think. Your motivation. Your actions, your intent, all of these things must be consistent with the new self or new birth. And we must be like Jesus has created us to be and live out in our mind and in our heart and in our walk 
what Christ has called us to do and to be. And so let me show you the first one this morning. We'll unpack this idea of what it means to walk in love. Notice verse 25, what happens here. Chapter 4 and verse 25, what you're going to see is that he begins to summarize or, or rather unpack rather. He begins to unpack what he said in the first part of the passage that we looked at last week. Put on the new self. So what does that look like? How do I put on the new self and put off the old self? So it's, it's like the text is in this one train of thought and it just kind of expands. It begins to talk about that. But that's not the only place that it changes kind of in in movement. In verse five, he says, therefore, again. So what's happening here is he expands out. What does it mean in some real practical on the ground kinds of ways to have the new self put on? But just so that we're guarded in our understanding and and we don't get lost in a checklist of things to do and not do, he brings it back home for us and says, I'm still dealing with one major idea here. Guard your walk. And in particular, what I want you to guard about your walk is in verse five, that you walk in love. He's concerned that the church of Ephesus doesn't get wrapped up in all the do's and don'ts of Christianity, but rather that they get to the core of what Christianity is really all about. And that is the heart. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. This is his goal. And so then we as believers, we gain this major truth about Christianity. If you came at Christianity thinking you just got a list of commandments to follow and, and you can just do that and you're, you're good. What Paul wants us to hear is that we're to walk in love. And in walking in love, it means to imitate the love of God toward us in Christ shown in the gospel. That's the kind of heart we have as Christians. We walk in love and we imitate, therefore, the love of God toward us in Christ shown in the gospel. That last part is incredibly important. Why? Because if you just read in our day and time, if you just read walk in love, you're liable to get some kind of twisted messed up, distorted idea of what Paul is saying. Because we have not defined in our culture love the way the Bible defines love. We do not understand love. We, we see love as, as kind of a benevolent kind of a thing, or we see love as kind of an emotional kind of thing, but we do not see love, by and large, in our day with any sense of moral responsibility. In fact, if you rewind the tape just a few years back, you'll, you'll know about the time whenever peace and love meant that we throw off all moral restraint in our country. And we just do whatever we want to do. This is not at all what... Love is described as in the Bible. In fact, when Paul says walk in love, he uses the Greek word agape, which is a godly kind of love, a perfect kind of love. We want to make that distinction in the Christian life. We want to say, well, God's love is perfect, but my love is imperfect. And yet Paul doesn't make that distinction here. Paul says, I want you, church, to have the love of God. Walk in God's perfect love. And he's not just describing love for 
God or God's love for us because of the ethical dimension in the passage. We're to walk in the kind of God, the kind of love that God has for us. We're to express that kind of love toward one another. And that's why that last part of that phrase is so important, that we imitate God in his love. We define love in so many different ways, don't we? We define love as happiness. I would say that it's just pure emotionalism, shallowness, where we we just want to be happy. A lot of people find marriage this way and they chase after a mate and they want to get married because they're looking for the person that will make them what? Happy. How many of you have heard that before? This isn't the way Bible, the Bible describes love. It's not just simply emotionalism. Some would define love as kind of a self-serving narcissism where their loving relationships around them, the happiness is there, but they're satisfied in those relationships such that that they they live in this way so that the other person kind of completes all their life goals and all of their dreams and ambitions. And if that other person is not there or or if that other uh, relationship is not there and that, that it just it just kind of falls apart, it's kind of this. Weird, twisted narcissism. Some of us define love in kind of this debilitating codependency where we can't live without another person. If we don't have them there by our side, then we, we can't live and we, we don't know how to survive and we're not competent to live our lives. And we like in the church today, especially in our age of social activism, We like in the church today to define love as alleviating any sense of moral responsibility on behalf of other people. And we want to say that if we love someone, then we won't hold them responsible for their actions. And any time we hold someone responsible for their actions, then we're we're described as unloving. The problem with all of those things is Every one of them stands against what biblical love really is. And so Paul wants to guard that carefully and say to the church, listen, you ought to love one another and love one another, not just in a worldly kind of a way. The gospel now infused into your life has taken the love of God and so planted it deep within your heart that you now live out that love toward one another and other other people. And so we need to see and Paul helps us to see what the love of God and Christ looks like. And I I wonder if sometimes as Christians, if we've forgotten how much we really were loved by God and are loved by God whenever he saved us. I, I think there may be some in this room who you would say to me, I I don't even know what the love of God really looks like for me. Sure, I, there's a lot of people he loves, but it's not me. How, how, what are you talking about, Pastor? What does this love look like? I want to show it to you this morning as Paul shows it to us in a couple of different truths. And the first one is just simply seeing his love. And so, number one, see how God loves you in the gospel. And I, I hope that you see this clearly this morning. I, I really do. I really want you to know the love of God in Christ. It's there in the second half of our passage together when he says to be imitators 
of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. As Christ loved us, we have been loved by God. I want you to think about this for a moment. This morning, I, I got a phone call that um, there was uh, some missing uh, teenagers that are over uh, kind of east of us a little bit. And uh, the Clark family is kind of helping out in that process and getting the privilege of ministering to this family uh, whose teenagers are missing, or these two families, really. And I thought about that as I was reading through this um, before we met together this morning and and. How many of you just, you just love your kids or your grandkids? I mean, you, you just love them. You love them. And if you don't have kids, some of you just love the kids of this church so much, right? You just always want to serve in the nursery. Um, but anyway, I'm just, you know, just that's that's the, that's actually a suggestion. But anyway, um, so we love our kids because because they're ours and and everything about them we love. But the love of God is different because we are not by nature his children. We, we are by nature the enemies of God. So imagine spending your day searching for a lost teenager that's not yours and that has done everything they can do to make your life miserable and taken everything from you and disobeyed every order that maybe you ever gave them and has no reason for you to love them. This is what God has done for us. That's what Paul says to us, that he has loved us in Christ. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. You don't you don't have to sacrifice anything for those that you love because there's no debt to pay. You just love them freely. And yet God has made an eternally valuable sacrifice so that we could become his children. Through the only Son of God. Think about this. We hated God by nature. We didn't want to obey God. We looked for every reason to do our own thing. We rejected His law and His commandments. And yet, God has loved us from eternity past. That is an amazing thought. We just sang about this. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is this love for me. We sang about how He could love me. I just wonder... I hope that you wonder this sometimes and that God just kind of sweeps that wonder out of your mind with calm assurance. But I hope that you wonder sometimes, how could God even love me like I've turned my back on him? And yet it's an amazing love. Romans five, I think about this. Romans five says that we were when we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died not for his sons, but for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. We would do that. You know, we we've got soldiers who give their lives for us every day because they love those that they have at home. They love their country. But God died for his enemies. Verse eight says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or first John three sixteen. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us and then he takes that ethical dimension as well. that We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So Paul points to this very specific nature about God's love, that it's not dependent on someone who reciprocates, but rather someone who is rejecting. So what did he do for us? Well, God's love becomes our substitute. So see these things. Well, just kind of work your way out from that passage. 
Christ loved us. And in, in loving us, the, the act of loving was giving himself up for us. And it says that he did that as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. That picture of a fragrant offering, we, we could spend time with this, but remember the story of Noah after God destroyed all of the things that, that Noah built an altar to the Lord and that that altar became a sweet smelling aroma. He sacrificed things. To God, He sacrificed living things. And Jesus now, Hebrews tells us, has become that sacrifice where He is the sweet-smelling aroma, where everything good in us is Jesus and, and God is completely satisfied in that. Jesus substituted His own life for what you and I deserve. That's how much He loved us. We deserve the wrath of God for all of eternity and Jesus became our substitute. So God's love substitutes itself on behalf of sinners. Secondly, God's love forgives our sin. Notice it there in chapter 4. Just working your way out. Chapter 4, he says, Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That we're to forgive one another as God in Christ. See, see, this is an amazing thing. It's not that God just gives you a, a pass. <laughs> It's that all of your sin, from beginning to end, as deep and as wide as it possibly was, and even your self-guided goodness that is as filthy rags before the Lord, all of those things Jesus forgives as far as the east is from the west, no longer holding it against you. The word forgiveness is an accounting term. It's to erase a debt that is owed. God, listen to this Christian, God no longer holds any record of wrongs against your life. Forever we have been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ having paid our debt. And so Christ's love, God's love forgives our sin. And three, God's love adopts us as sons. There it is. We weren't sons, we become sons. Therefore, verse, chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. <laughs> you and I are not children of God by nature, but we become children of God by adoption, and it is through God's Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, is that not good news this morning? Y'all aren't awake. Is that not good news this morning? That we are sinners and we get to become sons and daughters of the living God. It doesn't hold it against you. And, and, Jesus was given in your place. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus died for us, but he was raised to life and we get to know him. We get to know the one who died for us. We will see him face to face one day. And I am incredibly thankful. But I want you to notice about this gospel that none of these things emphasize what we have de- what we have done to deserve God's love none of them in fact they emphasize quite the opposite they emphasize what God has done to freely give it and Paul on that platform builds an ethical command And he says, you go ahead and love each other in the same non-reciprocated, possibly, the same 
unconditional kind of manner. And so it leads us to number two. It's huge because we tend to love when it's given back to us. But Paul says to show God's love to others through the gospel. Show God's love to others through the gospel. So we're told here to imitate God. Live like God lives. And that's an amazing thought. Because again, we get the excuse, I'm not perfect, I'm not Jesus, right? Anybody ever heard that? I'm not perfect, Jesus did this, but I'm just not perfect, I'm only human. But instead of looking to Jesus and saying we could never be like He is, we look to Jesus and say we must strive to be like He is, regardless of how short we fall. All of the weight is coming from chapters 1 through 4 when we see all that Christ has done for us. And Paul is in essence saying, if you have seen and known the love of God in Christ, you can do nothing less than love in this way. Show the same kind of love. So I want you to hear this. Love in the Gospel, as we give it to others, love is not at all defined by what another deserves, but what God both demonstrates and demands in the gospel. He says, walk in love. Imitate the love of God toward us in Christ shown in the gospel. You live that way. Become a substitute in a sense. Forgive sin. Adopt as sons in a sense. You say, how does that even apply to us? What does it look like? Well, it is, it is to take on yourself. Don't miss this. It is to take on yourself the suffering required and forgive the sin committed by another in order to right our relationship in every way they are wrong. I want you to hear that statement again. It's not on the screen. I want you to hear this statement again. What does it mean to imitate God and His love? It is to take the suffering required and to forgive the sin committed In order to right our relationships in every way they are wrong. That is a tall order. So, Paul gives us a list. And the list is not exhaustive, it's examples. It's not exhaustive of the law. There's many other things in the law. He gives a set of examples that are in the law. It's a similar picture, and we don't have time to read this this morning, but it's a similar picture to Deuteronomy 6. He's about to read the law at the edge of the promised land as a, as a way to remember all that God has said. And right at the beginning, some of you have this memorized. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second place, Matthew gives us the account of Jesus repeating that, teaching that same kind of thing. When the Pharisees say, hey, what's the most important part of the law? And Jesus says the whole law hangs on two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the call. Paul is doing a similar thing here. He's saying, what I'm saying in these commandments is that you love one another. That you love one another in the same way Christ has loved. It's what Paul's doing here. He's giving you examples. Now, we spent a lot of time on these, on this passage. Walking through what it means to love one another when we did the one another series. And so, I want to just do a quick flyover of these and then we're going to wrap up. Quick flyover. 
There are six of them quickly. We should, number one, love one another with truth. Love one another with truth. It's there in verse 25. And by the way, these all start the same. So you can just kind of, for the sake of notes, you can just kind of take down the last two, really the last word on all of them. Love one another with truth. Verse 25, he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He, he pings off of that membership picture, that biblical community picture, being members of one another and that we should live in truth. Same thing we got from chapter 4, that we should live in unity. We shouldn't speak falsehood. It covers everything from lying. It, covers, it, it would cover uh, uh, falsifying things. It would cover uh, fraud. Anything you can think of. Cheating your way in business. All of those things. You don't live like that anymore. Easy things we think about that we don't think about, like just simply fudging your time card and making it different than what it was whenever you really clocked out. I mean, simple things. You don't live that way anymore. You, you love one another with truth. Secondly, love one another with peacefulness. Peacefulness. And we could spend all day here. Some of, the, some of our married couples in the room, we need to hear this again and again. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It is entirely possible for you to, make, to be angry and be angry righteously in a sense. But when that anger turns to sinfulness, whenever we begin to do other things and lash out on those other things, it's entirely possible for us to be sinful. And if we let that anger go on and fester and brew, we actually give opportunity for the devil to tear apart what God has created. And not just in marriage, but in any relationship, marriage is the easiest one, most of our Faults and things get pressed out of us in marriage, right? But all of these things and all of our relationships, not only do we give the devil an opportunity, but we also actually live in sin by not dealing with it. We don't when we let the sun go down. It doesn't mean you can't go to bed angry. That's a good practice. It just simply means that you don't let it stay and brew. And so we we love one another with peacefulness. You want to be a peacemaker is the goal. It doesn't mean at the cost of truth, but you do want to be peaceful. Number three, love one another with generosity. Love one another with generosity. Again, we could spend a lot of time here. But the person, the old man, was once who stole from people. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. And watch this. His labor, this is interesting, his labor as a Christian is no longer get all I can and take from whom I have to. His labor is doing honest work. So your work ethic is is applicable there. You ought to work hard as a believer. And why should you work hard? Do honest work with your hands so that he or you may have something to share with anyone in need. It's the whole goal now of working. Provide for your family and everything that is beyond that. You should want to have a heart of generosity to give. And we've got incredibly generous people in this church that we could just tell story after story. And I'm thankful for that. You believer ought to have just a heart to give to other people such that your things are not your own. They're they're Christ's, And you've just been given them as a as a trust. We are to love one another, number four, with encouragement. Again, we really need to spend a lot of time here, but just for the sake of time, 29, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk. It's not talking about 
bad jokes that comes next week. It's talking about corrupting, tearing down. When you corrupt something, you destroy it. It just decays. And so what he's saying is let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth or the kind of talk that would destroy other people. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And he goes on to explain that grieves the spirit of God. It, it, it grieves God's spirit. And the picture of grieving God's spirit is not just making him sad, but actually you are you're actually distancing yourself in a way from his abiding presence in your life and in his church grieves God's spirit. God's spirit is not blessed and honored in a place where people are constantly tearing one another down. He reminds them that you were sealed by that spirit for the day of redemption. He saved you and there is not coming a day at any point when you will ever fall away from that salvation. If it was genuine, if you truly trusted in Christ and you've been a bo- you've been a born a- been born again. So don't act like don't act like the lost world anymore. Live a life that is worthy of the gospel. So he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor whole bunch of Things that you put all those things in a pot. (laughs) You talk about one ugly speaking, acting person. Bitterness and anger and clamor and wrath. And just we've all met the kind of person that just is bitter to no end. Nothing good to say. Always tearing others down. He says that's not the life of the Christian. And I want to camp out there because we have so much of that happening in the church today. And I'm not talking about, praise God, where we are as a church. I'm just so thankful for the love and the unity that we're seeing, that we're experiencing here as a church. God has really blessed that. I'm just thankful for that. Oh, but be guarded. Because it is so easy to begin to grieve the Spirit of God and to fall away from that picture that we see. So put it away along with all malice. Fifth, we're almost there. Number five, love one another with kindness. He uses two statements or two words. Be kind to one another and tender hearted. The idea of tender hearted meaning you don't just you don't just when people are hurting or when people are repent or remorseful over sin or whether you don't you don't get hard hearted and callous. You're not like Pharaoh that says, I'm not I'm not willing to budge. I got to set a score to settle. I'm going to make sure I keep this account. It's not getting erased. That's why it leads into this last one. It's not getting erased. I'm holding that hostage and you in doing that. I'm holding you hostage. But he says, be kind to one another and tenderhearted. You ought to be quick to offer kindness to one another and to others. And then the the last one, number six, love one another with forgiveness. He says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. All of these things, by the way, are gospel things, are they not? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth. He brought us truth. Jesus came to bring peace between us and God. He has been generous to us and given us freely what we do not deserve. He builds us up and encourages us and grows us in the faith. He's offered to us his loving kindness and he has forgiven our sin. All of those things, gospel things. So if you don't know the love of God in Christ or you've forgotten, you've grown cold to the love of God in Christ. It will be impossible for you to obey these things that we've seen for you to walk in love. But believer, hear me. 
If Christ has saved you and you can sing that song at the top of your lungs. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. If you can sing that, then you ought to love one another even as Christ has loved you. There may be some of you in this room this morning. You say, I can't sing that song. I feel distant from God and separated. I, I don't know that. I mean, there's things in my life he could he would never forgive. I just I've done too much. Maybe some of you are just hard hearted toward God. You're angry at him. You wish that he had done something different in your life and he he didn't do that thing. And so you've said, you know what? I've got a score to settle. Maybe some of you are just you don't know all there is to know. And you say this this thing called Christianity is just so foreign and I don't understand it all. I want you to hear very clearly the call of God's word this morning. Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross as your substitute. The death that you deserved. Hear me. And in paying that debt, He later rose from the dead three days later. And He is alive. And He's King of kings. And He's Lord of lords. Ruler of the universe. And Savior offered to you right now. And here is the call of the Bible. You turn from your sin. The Bible calls it repentance. And you put your faith in Christ. You trust in Him today. And today He will save you. Because the Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen, church? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Some of you in this room... You'd say, I've experienced the love of Jesus, but pastor, I had forgotten. And today God has opened my eyes to see once again. I want to just encourage you in a moment when this song begins to play that you just simply worship. That you just worship over what God has done in your life. Some of you this morning need to come and hit your face. And get on your knees before the Lord and say, today, God, I need you to forgive me. Because I've not been loving like you love me. Everything you did for me, I've just been doing the opposite with people in my life. And God, I need your help. I need you to forgive me. And the Bible says, if you confess that today, he will forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And not only that, but he will empower you to love as he loves. It's an amazing thing. So the invitation is open. The question is, will you respond today to his love? I want to encourage you to stand with me all across this room with every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to pray here in just a moment. Some music is going to be playing. This altar is open. If that's you, one of those cases, or maybe there's other things in your life, maybe you just want somebody to pray with you, or you want to join this church, or you've never been baptized, our baptistry will be open soon, I promise. Whatever it is, whatever it is, you come this morning and Obey the Lord. Father, I pray that you'd have your way in this place, that our hearts would be submissive to you and that you would receive glory and honor from all that takes place in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, 
connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.